This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is Equity Mates On Tour. Equity Mates goes to Wall Street. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is Welcome back to another episode of Equity Mates on our US tour. If you're joining us for the very first time, a huge welcome. Thank you for joining the Equity Mates community and congrats on starting your investing journey. Equity Mates is all about following our journey as we learn to invest. Now, while we are licensed, we are not aware of your financial circumstances. All information on this show is for education and entertainment purposes only. Any advice is general. But with that said, my name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Great to be here. We are in New York. Yes. We are in a meeting room, and outside in the lobby, there is very loud elevator music, yes. so I'm really hoping it's I'm not being picked up on the mic. It's nice. Um, but we've just finished up our second interview here in New York, our third interview uh, in the United States, and... Loving the opportunity to speak to overseas investors mm. in person. Mm. We've been pretty lucky. Yes, we were lucky to uh, have Dominic D'Angelo from uh, O'Keefe Stevens Advisory join us. He drove all the way from Rochester to be with us. He also did attend the Berkshire uh, AGM. Now, Dominic is a research analyst at O'Keefe Stevens Advisory, and he is also a professor at Nazareth College, all at the uh, ripe age of 27 years old. So pretty impressive. Yeah, pretty impressive guy. Uh, really interesting conversation. We covered a lot of ground in mm. this, a lot of different companies and uh, different industries, some big predictions about both Tesla and Bitcoin, Yes, uh, but we'll get to that. But Bryce, before we actually get to the interview, we have to say thank you to Milford for sponsoring our US tour, getting us over here and mm. allowing us to have these conversations in person. Yes, huge uh, thank you. Milford is a leading New Zealand fund manager who are now available for Australian investors and advisors. Milford's flexible active management strategies and high-performing globally experienced investment team aim to deliver strong long-term returns while managing downside risks. Milford's team also invest in the same funds as their clients, so you know that they they are highly motivated because they're on the same journey with you. So you can find the Milford funds on your trading platforms or at milfordasset.com.au. And before you invest, be sure to read the funds products disclosure statement and target market determination found at milfordasset.com.au. Well, Dominic, welcome to Equity Mates. Thank you so much for having me. Now, uh, as is tradition, we will kick off with the Equity Mates daily guessing game, Biz Nerdle. Uh, you told us off air that you have been doing a bit of practice. Have to be ready for this. Nice. So <laughs> love that, love that. We've opened it up. We've got it ready. If you want to play along at home, equitymates.com slash biznerdle. There'll be a new quiz every day. Uh, Ren's on a bit of a hot streak at the moment. Uh, should I kick it off? Yes. All right, clue number one. In 2022, my partnership with Kanye West officially ended. The Gap. Oh, he's done it. <laughs> <laughs> he's done it. I thought for sure that that would uh, lead you down Adidas. I don't even listen to his music either. That is just, I don't know where that comes from. But Wow, I got it in one. Wow. So just to close out uh, for those that are, um, are unaware of the company, it is Gap. Uh, the stock ticker is GPS. They're an American worldwide clothing and accessories retailer. Um, I don't think I would have got this one, to be honest, Ren. You, you knew it. I would have, I wouldn't have got it in one. I would have gone Adidas first, but I think I would have got it eventually. Yeah. So they yeah. own several other popular brands, including Banana Republic, Old Navy, Athleta, and Intermix. Some of which I haven't also heard of. Well, uh, Dominic, uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we're over here in New York, and uh, just so excited that we're speaking to Americans, not on Zoom or on you know any of those online recording equipments, but in person. Um, 
can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to work at O'Keefe Stevens Advisory? Yeah, so I grew up in Buffalo, New York my entire life. I attended Kenesha's College, just a small Jesuit school in downtown Buffalo. Um, my first job out of college was actually at a commercial real estate broker. And I think that's actually a pretty interesting spot right now, given what's going on, at least in the U.S. with the rising rates and um, potential commercial real estate problems on that side. Um, I passed my CFA level one while I was there. And then I actually got a job at a pension fund out in Columbus, Ohio. Um, I was there for two years. Um, it was a great learning experience. Um, spent two years there, passed my CFA level two, and then joined um, O'Keefe Stevens Advisory on April Fool's Day in 2021. Um, so I've been there for a little over two years now, um, got my um, CFA designation. Um, the best part about O'Keefe Stevens Advisory is it's just myself and the CIO, Peter O'Keefe, on the invest- investment side. So I am involved in the day-to-day um, investment operations, so get to learn a lot. To kind of put some context to the discussion around some of the portfolio positions, how would you describe your investment philosophy? Sure. So I think I'm a value bent, but not necessarily your traditional, you know, low price earnings, low price to book um, type investor. Um, you know, the way I think about it is a, a business's value is the present value of the future cash, cash flows. Um, so that's sort of how you have to think about valuing a business. Um, typically, the way I'll try and find businesses is look for misunderstood um, companies, maybe smaller. Um, and then also there's sort of a bent where try and look for companies that get acquired, which we might talk about um, in a little bit. So um, when you have a potential catalyst on the horizon, I think the potential um, discrepancy between the price and what you think the fair value is, um, there's a quicker way for that to get closed when you, I, when you can identify a catalyst um, within the business. So let's, uh, let's look at some of your top five holdings um, and talk about, I guess, what, what you think about them and um, you sort of apply that investment philosophy. Philosophy, Because when we were looking, uh, there's a range of industries and a range of companies. Uh, two semiconductor companies, NVIDIA and Qualcomm, a bank, Bank of Ireland, a uh, pharmaceutical company, Amgen, and a manufacturing company, Corning. So what ties these companies together? Why do you like them? What, what sort of, yeah, what, what ties them together? Yeah, so NVIDIA is actually an interesting case. We've owned that since 2013 or so. So our cost basis on that after you adjust for the split is somewhere around $3. And, you know, the stock's trading somewhere around 260 270 mm-hmm. So um, that's sort of an outlier in the case. But there are some things that actually tie all of them together. Um, and that typically is a healthy balance sheet um, across all the all five. And then they're also heavily reinvesting in research and development. Um, so one of the things Reed Hastings um, at Netflix always says is you've got to be willing to disrupt your own company. And the way you do that is to continually reinvest um, in research and development back into your company. Um, So when we think of NVIDIA and Qualcomm, you know, you've got autonomous vehicles, artificial intelligence, data centers, things like that, that we know are in the early, early stages of the of the business and the potential runway for those is very long. So we love to see that those businesses are reinvesting a heavy amount of the revenue and cash flows that they generate back into the business because that, long, because that um, available market is so large um, that we want them to be um, in the forefront position to potentially um, be the market leader. Um, bank of Ireland is also another company. Um, if you think about a bank, it's really just a commodity business. The only way you win is maybe you have a little better service, maybe you beat um, competitors on pricing. Um, but just anecdotally, you know, I have a bank account with, you know, a larger um, institution. And then I also have a mortgage with uh, like a small regional um, local bank in Rochester. The difference in the technology platforms is so wide that you can actually, I'll, I'll never actually stay with this local bank because I can't do anything on the app. <laughs> and so when, when I, whenever that mortgage gets paid off, I am instantly going to just end my account and go over there. So Bank of Ireland is investing heavily back onto the mobile, um, mobile platform. Um, they're typically eliminating branches, trying to get customers um, to go more electronic um, on the banking side. Um, companies like Amgen and Corning as well, again, healthy balance sheets, minimal debt, um, again, reinvesting back into the business. Um, it would actually really concern us if any of these companies, we saw um, a drop off in R&D or took on a heavy amount of debt. Um, that would be one of the things we would have to heavily consider um, and maybe cause us to exit the position. Dominic, what do you look for in an investment? And like, talk us through your investment process. 
the first thing you have to think about is, is this in my circle of competence? So am I going to be able to understand um, this business? There are businesses that you know you're going to have sort of a, an advantage versus another. So if you use the product on a daily basis, those are typically the first companies I'm going to look to you know invest in. Um, so I, I golf. Um, I'll look. What's at the like, handicap? I'm a seven. Wow. So, wow. Okay. Uh, nice. so <laughs> we are not playing. I'm seven. a little bit higher. <laughs> <laughs> Took a while to get there. Uh, so, so companies like Callaway Brands is one that we'll look at, or Chusnut, um, things like that. Um, and then I said that the first place um, I worked at was at a commercial real estate broker, and there are several publicly traded real estate brokers. Um, so that, you know, I have connections within the industry. I can call them up at, you know, essentially any time and try and get real-time information as what, to, as what they're seeing um, in the industry. So I really think about, am I ever going to be the last person to know if something is going wrong with the investment? So, you know, Bank of Ireland's across the, you know, across the sea. I, it's tough to think that I'm going to be the first one to know if something's wrong there. We got that stock at such an attractive price that we thought it was worth the risk. Um, but there, there's other companies, you know, that maybe in Australia or other, other countries where I'm like, I know I'm going to be the last person to know if this investment's going wrong. And those are ones that we try and stay away from. And then when we try and find um, companies that we're actually looking to invest in, um, you know, it might be something that we're reading in the paper, some sort of business transition, CEO turnover, um, something like that, where we can identify a change within the business that, you know, maybe the market is misunderstanding um, as a potential negative and we could see it as a, as a positive going forward. You mentioned there that you got Bank of Ireland at such an attractive valuation. How do you think about valuation because you know you think of a stock like Nvidia, and that is the quintessential growth stock. You've gone from a split-adjusted three dollars a share to almost three hundred dollars a share, and then you look at something like Bank of Ireland, which wouldn't be growing that quickly, but you got it an attractive valuation. How do you incorporate valuation, and where do you incorporate it into your investment process? Yeah, so we always say, you know, you can have a great business, but if the price isn't right, then it really it doesn't matter. Um, so for every company, there's typically going to be some sort of metric that is the most important um, driver of the business. Um, so for a bank, we typically look at the return on equity. So how much is their net income versus how much equity do they have to hold on their um, balance sheet? And so we could buy Bank of Ireland that we thought was generating, you know, a seven or eight percent return on equity. But we thought that seven to eight could go over time to a 10 to 15. And we could actually buy that stock at, you know, 0.2 or 0.3 times tangible book value. And so we thought, you know, if that if the company can go from seven to eight times return on or seven to eight percent return on equity to 10 to 15, that multiple of 0.2 is just egregiously low probably should trade closer to one to one and a half times tangible book value. Um, today it's trading somewhere around one, one times tangible book value. Um, so we think that's fair. And then on the other side, you know, if you look at an NVIDIA or a growth stock, um, typically growth is the number one important um, driver of that business. As soon as you see growth start to taper off, but it's still priced like a growth stock, that's when you can run into real trouble. So companies like NVIDIA, they've grown pretty healthy over the past you know, decade, roughly, um, since we owned them. Um, and what's interesting is that they're able to expand their products or their end markets um, to different use cases. So when we originally bought it, we thought it was actually just a, a gaming company. And then data centers comes along, then artificial intelligence comes along, then autonomous vehicles comes along. So when you can expand your product line, um, it gives that potential um, revenue growth runway um, a lot clearer path and a lot longer. Yeah, I also missed the NVIDIA story because when we started doing the podcast and we started investing, uh, it was like it was so tied to gaming and it was like for those like high quality gaming PCs. And I think I was really late to realize the pivot into just like all these different business areas and now it's well it's one of the biggest stocks in the US now. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Top ten. Damn. Damn. What <laughs> <laughs> other thing just what's actually interesting with NVIDIA is People typically, you know, say, wow, look at this growth company and never really say it was a value company. The company actually was a net cash balance sheet. I think it had somewhere around $2 billion of net cash and it was right around like a $7 billion market cap when we made our initial purchase. So we actually bought it when we considered it to be sort of a value company. And now it just, you know, there's a lot of luck involved in investing and we got lucky that this mm. growth took off. Like it's luck, but it's also the 
perhaps the most important thing when it comes to investing or just like growing companies and what I probably think is the hardest thing for investors, which is you, it's assessing management. And, you know, especially for retail investors like us who can't pick up the phone and speak to that manager or get in a room with them, you're trying to like pass their publicly available statements and maybe they've been on a podcast or two or they've on a YouTube series or something, listening to their investor calls and trying to figure out, is this someone I would trust with my money? Now, NVIDIA's CEO is clearly someone who has repaid their investor trust. How do you go about assessing a manager like that? Yeah, so Jensen's been incredible, and that's actually one of the few reasons we continue to hold it, even though the valuation on it looks you know, outrageous at this point. Um, I think the incentives are one of the most important things you can identify when you're researching um, a stock. So one of the things you know, I have to do is, re- is read through the proxy statement to see what, um, what the management team is going to get paid on. So if I think a growth driver or a, the way the stock or the business is going to appreciate in value is through revenue growth or margin expansion, I want to go through the proxy statement and see if that is how management is getting paid or if it's some other way that, you know, maybe maybe it doesn't make it uh, make sense to invest in it. Um, there's times where you'll see um, management compensation tied to revenue revenue growth, but actually the business is not that good and it should maybe be shrinking instead of trying to grow. And so when you see a management incentive that is actually the complete opposite of what you want it to be, um, that that's one way that we're you know trying to avoid um, these value traps. What business would want to be shrinking revenue? The most prominent one that I can think of is typically like a retail company or maybe like a food and beverage company that opens up stores. Um, and maybe the management team is compensated on revenue growth. And so the way you can really increase revenue growth is by just opening more stores. But if you actually look at the underlying economics of the retail stores, they're getting worse and worse. And so, you know, I wrote um, a piece up on um, a company called LL Flooring. The company continues to open up stores. Yet, if you look at, you know, the return on invested capital that the company is generating on these new stores, it's likely well below the company's cost of capital. So actually, every time they open up another store, it it lowers the value of the company. Mm-hmm. And so that is one of the main um, ways I try and find, you know, a sell opportunity or maybe a short opportunity. Yeah, that's fascinating. You, you mentioned uh, when you were speaking about your investment philosophy, um, the potential for acquisition. Uh, it'd be great if you could um, unpack that a little bit more. Yeah. So there are some or some uh, industries that are just going through consolidation. One of the ones that really comes to mind is sort of the lumber industry. Um, we own a couple positions in that. Um, if you just look all across you know, the Canadian and U.S. Um, space, Lumber mills companies are getting acquired on like a weekly or monthly basis. Um, so when we see a lot of acquisitions going on within the industry, and even right now lumber is you know it's like three hundred dollars per board feet um, somewhere around that, and it's actually going through a pretty tough time right now. When you see consolidation within that industry, when you come out of that um, down cycle and you're a bigger company and probably going to be more profitable. Um, the setup for it could actually be um, a pretty good one. Um, anytime you can sort of envision a company being able to take a lot of costs out of the structure and where the acquisition actually you know, makes sense. Um, one of the companies we own is Warner Brothers Discovery. They went through a big acquisition, Discovery and Warner Media. Um, if you think about like the streaming industry, there are a lot of back office um, or duplicative um, services that you can take out and a lot of costs you can cut. So anytime you can see some consolidation in the industry or think of ways that you can really take costs out of the cost structure, um, those are places that we find interesting. So we were all at uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's talk over the weekend in Omaha um, and they got a question on the streaming industry and um, they were basically saying it's too competitive and uh, Warren or Charlie, I can't remember who, they had that story of owning a petrol Warren. station. Warren? Yeah. yeah, owning a petrol station and because it was so competitive, his profits were just set by whatever his competitor um, set their price at. Uh, so what do you think about that when uh, you are looking at Warner Brothers Discovery, just the, a massive amount of competition in the space? Yeah, so he was referring to, I believe, Paramount, um, yeah, PARA. When you see an industry just reinvest without any um, thought of profitability, when that flips, when that mentality flips from, okay, we need to reinvest at any cost to, okay, maybe we can pull back on spending because we're saturating the market or we're becoming a mature um, company. 
you know, when, when that flips and the free cash flow goes from substantially negative to positive, that typically is a pretty good sign. Um, I think Paramount cut their dividend, um, I want to say like 90%, something like that. Makes sense given the, the losses that that streaming business is um, taking up. So um, when we think of the Warner Brothers, Netflix, Paramount, um, it seems like spending is starting to get reined in a little and people are now focusing a lot more on profitability. A lot of these companies, you know, especially Warner Brothers, has a substantial amount of debt. So when we see every industry player rationalizing, we can now see a pretty clear path that the company goes from five times levered to maybe three, three and a half times over the next couple of years, given um, if every industry company um, becomes profitable, we know Warner Brothers is going to be in the same boat as them. And then the free cash flow should start being uh, being used to get paid or to pay down debt. Now, Dominic, you teach investment analysis at Nazareth College. You're a professor. That's correct. Nice, yeah. nice. And then obviously you work as an investment analyst at O'Keefe Stevens. How, when, like when I left uni and I, I don't think I've used anything from my degree in real life. <laughs> yep. <laughs> same, same. same. So how different is uh, investment analysis at college versus real life in the, in the trenches? Yeah, I think my real world experience really helped um, frame how I was going to teach the class because I was the exact same way as you about 90% of the classes I took. I have absolutely no idea what I learned from them. So I tried to structure it. You know, what do I do on my daily basis? What do I know that I I wish I knew coming out of college? Yeah. Um, and so what's funny is I taught intro to investments and then investment analysis. Um, and the way I started off the class, um, I'm a fan of Joel Greenblatt and yeah. he um, ran this experiment, I think it was with like fifth graders or something, where he filled this jar of jelly beans and he said, we're going to simulate how the stock market works. And what he did, he filled up the jelly beans with, or the jar with like 1800 jelly beans. And he, he passed around index cards to all the students. And he said, here, write how many jelly beans you think is in this glass. You know, all the students come back, they hand them. And then he goes around one by one and says, you know, how many jelly beans do you think? You can either keep your answer or you can change it. And it's supposed to simulate that when you do the index card, that's your own judgment. It's an independent decision. Whereas when you start hearing what other people are guessing, uh, it starts to cloud your um, like your rational judgment. And so I thought that was going to be a great way to start off the semester. So I filled the jar to the exact same number of jelly beans that he did in his class. It was like 1800 something. And so I pass around the index cards. I thought, wow, this is going to be a great way to start the semester. And I get all the index cards back and they're nowhere close to what the actual number of jelly beans is in that jar. I'm like, wow, this totally bobs. <laughs> so that I taught them, you know, maybe you need to do a little more research. This, this could be um, one of those points where it's like, you're not ready to invest yet because you don't have all the information that you need, but you know, with time you're going to um, develop better judgment. So I tried to structure the class um, again, how, how I want or how I structure essentially my day, um, the research process I go through. Um, so in class, we actually looked at a company called Seritage. It's a old Sears company, um, real estate play. They're actually liquidating all of the real estate that they own. And so I, you know, made an assignment where every student was going to look at 10 of the real estate properties that the company owns. They're going to value the properties by themselves. And then as a class, we're going to combine all the, um, all, the, all the values. And then we're going to compare the value that we come up with to what the stock is trading for. Stock at the time was trading for around $8 a share. After we did the analysis, we came up with like a 10 to $11 per share price target. I was like, this is exactly what we would do in the real world if we were trying to value it. So we looked at like comparable properties, you know, if the property was fully valued or fully rented out, what would the value of the property be? And I think that gave them a pretty good appreciation of how to how to go about valuing something, whether it's real estate or whether it's business. You know, in the end, you're there's different ways to value businesses. Um, so I thought that was a pretty you know interesting way. And then we talked about you know why did we come with come up with ten to eleven stocks at eight? Do we think it's a good buy, sell, things like that? Nice, love it. Yeah, yeah. Kind of wish I had uh, that level of practical learning at uni. Yeah. Um, so I guess for those that aren't taking your class and that uh, want to, you know, uh, maybe studying a finance degree and want to get into funds management, um, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that are crucial. One, I, I started off the class, I said, if you ever want to get into the investing industry, you have got to have a personal account that you are investing in. A paper account 
just does not do the emotional side of investing at all. So I said, I don't care if it's $50, $100, $10, any amount of money is going to get you in tune with what's going on in the market, what's going on with that business. Pick something you like. You know, if you, if you like, if you're a, if you're a woman and you like to shop, you know, pick a, pick a company you shop at or pick a store you shop at. If you're a guy, um, and again, you like golf, pick Callaway brands, you know, pick something that you are in tune with. Um, that's the first thing. Second, um, I started writing publicly, you know, my investor letters. I now write, um, some research reports on seeking alpha. I think making your investment ideas public, it's a great way to get feedback on your ideas. You know, investing is a very humbling business. I, I published reports on a company that has gone down, I think 50% since I published it, You, you know, getting the feedback on why that might've happened or, you know, what went, went right, what went wrong. Um, it also makes you stay true to yourself. Like you can't say, Oh, I thought it was going to, you know, some business was going to do X and it did Y, but, um, it, it makes you stay honest with, um, with your process. Um, so those are the two, two main things I would say. I love that. I mean, the, the genesis of this podcast was Bryce and I, we left university, we wanted to invest together and learn together. I suggested we write a blog. Luckily, Bryce suggested we do a podcast <laughs> instead. <laughs> Blogs haven't done too well in the years since. Yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, there's a real difference. Like writing down your thesis is so valuable because, yeah, otherwise you trick yourself. You get, um, you know, thesis creep or you convince yourself that you had the right idea. But um, making it public is a whole other level of accountability. Yeah, I'll just add one, one thing there. The first company I ever invested in was Herbalife. And this was back in <laughs> nice. like 2014. And I read The Intelligent Investor. I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the 52-week low list. I'm going to pick a company with a low price earnings. I'm going to buy it and I'm going to hold forever. Well, if you knew what was going on in 2014, that was the height of when Bill Ackman yeah. was short the company against Carl Icahn. And I remember coming home, I, I bought the stock. It was somewhere around $50. And I bought the stock and I'm literally like walking from class to class, just like updating the ticker and the stock price every, every second. I'm like, this is outrageous. And then one day I, I come home, I, I believe I take a nap or something and I wake up and it's 4.30 and I get an alert from Yahoo Finance and it says Carl Icahn potentially selling his stake in Herbalife. And the stock is down like 22% in after hours. The stock's gone from 50 to like mid thirties. I'm sitting there. I'm like, I have to be the biggest idiot. This stock is probably going to zero. I just worked my entire summer, invested all of my money into this stock, and it's probably I probably just lost it all. There is no way to simulate something like that yeah. without actually putting real money on the yeah. table. And for context, so 2014, you would have been about 18 or 19 years old? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, nice. Dominic, we're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to check in on two massive predictions that you made at the start of the year on Tesla and crypto. Were you right? Were you wrong? And where to from here? But Ren, we must say a massive thank you for Milford for getting us all the way to the US. Yeah, thank you, Milford. If you want to give your portfolio an offensive and defensive strategy, check out Milford's award-winning Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund. Utilizing the skills of Milford's experienced investment team, the Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund has been focusing on delivering a smoother journey for investors for over half a decade. With an emphasis on managing risk and generating absolute returns, this lower volatility equity fund can play a key role in a diversified portfolio. The fund strives for long-term capital growth while mitigating the ups and downs typically experienced when investing in the share market. You can find the Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund, ticker symbol MFOA, on your trading platforms or at milfordasset.com.au. And before you invest, be sure to read the fund's product disclosure statement and target market determination found at milfordasset.com.au. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do 
and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Wall Street 2023. This is Equity Mates on Tour. So we're here with Dominic D'Angelo, research analyst at O'Keefe Stevens Advisory and professor at Nazareth College. So Dominic, in your, you, you've mentioned there that you now write investor letters and this is how we came across you on security analysis on Reddit. Um, great resource for those listening along. In your Q4 quarterly letter, you shared some of your biggest lessons from 2022. Tough year for markets, tough year for our portfolios, particularly Renz. Um, uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> what, were, what were some of the biggest lessons that came out of that, that year that I think, you know, you're still, well, we're still young and from a macro point of view, we're experiencing a lot of things that we hadn't experienced before. Inflation, rising interest yeah, rates. Yeah, rising interest rates. Yeah, like, wow, they're actually, yeah, inflation's real, interest rates are a thing. <laughs> what, what are some lessons that are really going to stick with you for the rest of your career? Yeah, um, and I touch on this in the class as well. Um, mergers are very hard to do. Smaller mergers, mergers might be a little easier. When you do a very large acquisition or merger, The integration process is very challenging. So I touched on it before with Discovery acquiring a much larger company than itself in Warner Media. When a management team comes out, sets out targets, and then results are substantially worse than what you expected them to be in what they said. So um, John Malone actually went on CNBC and the target for when the company went through the merger was they were going to come out somewhere around four times leverage. They complete the merger. And right now they stand at five times leverage. They're going to get down a little throughout the year. But when you go from, I think we're going to come out to four times or less than four times, and you currently stand at five and and the market's actually getting worse for you, you kind of have to think about, is the thesis still there? Should it actually have gone through with this merger? Is management just trying to, you know, hold up the stock price and the business? Are they just gutting the company on the inside? Um, We've seen how many layoffs that the company has already done. So you have to worry about what the actual future is of the business. Um, And then the other thing I try and think about is when you have a company with relatively high quality assets and they go out and make make an acquisition of lower quality assets, you have to think about which of those assets is going to win out in the long run. And the way I think about it is, is when the management team is solely focused on those good assets, they can put all their attention. Now you acquire lesser quality assets. They're probably going to spend more time focusing on those lower quality assets and what does that do to those higher quality assets? And so it's probably the lower quality gets a little better, but the high quality assets might actually get a lot worse and the net result might be a pretty big negative. And so I guess the lesson for you then is this is just a watch out if any of your portfolio companies engage in mergers and acquisitions of that scale and a thesis breaker. Yeah, so there's actually been several reports done on the um, value creation from mergers And it is the most value destructive um, business transaction that a company can do. Um, It's better if they internally um, reinvest in the business or expand product lines, things like that. I think when a company makes a substantially large acquisition, I think you need to deeply think about what the probability is that it succeeds over the long run because the odds are very stacked against you. We've got a company in Australia. I don't know if you've heard of Telstra. It's one of our leading telecommunications companies. It's like, it's like Australia's AT&T. Yeah. Okay. Now, their share price has done nothing for almost 10 years, yeah. yet in that period of time, I, th- I think they've made like 80 to 100 acquisitions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. They've just yeah. done nothing. Yes. <laughs> That's incredible. That's tough to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It takes skill. It takes skill. That's exactly right. <laughs> So your, I think it was in your letter or it was in something else I was reading about Warner Brothers Discovery. Um, you, you spoke about, um, I guess, thesis drift a little bit. And, um, you know, the, for a lot of people investing in Discovery pre-merger, 
um, the thesis was that Discovery's cost to create content was lower than a lot of their competitors, Netflix, Disney, all of them. Uh, and then all of a sudden um, they merge with Warner Brothers Discovery and all of a sudden like a key competitive advantage is eroded away. That's exactly right. Was that in your letter? That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I thought it was a really interesting point. So do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So um, the CEO of Discovery um, and now Warner Media is uh, David Zaslav and Prior to the merger, he had always talked about the value that Discovery has in the unscripted TV. So if you think about Discovery, they have like um, Joanna Gaines, um, all their content for the for the most part was, you know, unscripted. So that's, you know, no lines are written, anything like that. Whereas yeah, the, like documentaries and reality it, TV. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, whereas if you think about, you know, Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, these are all scripted, high budget productions. And the reason Discovery was going to be a big player in the streaming industry and be one of the few that is profitable is because when your costs are so much lower than the competitors, you know, maybe you can charge a little less, but even so, since you have a much lower cost basis, um, you're able to, you know, generate profits on that. When they made the acquisition of Warner Media, they went from a predominantly unscripted platform to a predominantly scripted um, platform. In Literally three months prior to that acquisition, David Zaslav was, you know, on the, I think it was the Q3 earnings call saying our key advantage is this unscripted uh, cost advantage. And it's like, how, how can you say that three months ago and then make a hundred billion dollar acquisition, <laughs> totally transform your business to exactly what you said you're not going to do? You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Again, I put in the letter. Maybe it's just the stock is down something like sixty six percent since we um, bought it. My God, when when the CEO of the company just made a massive bet on the company, totally changes the business model. Boy, you have to really think long and hard if he knows what you know the right right outcome is for the for the business. So in uh, that Q4 uh, quarterly letter, we'll, we'll include the link to the letter in our show notes if people want to read it. Um, you made a few predictions for 2023, uh, which we thought were interesting uh, to unpack. So let's go one by one. Um, the first one, we've t- talked about uh, mergers and acquisitions a little bit uh, today. Your first prediction was that one of our top 25 holdings gets acquired. Now, we don't know all of your top 25. We spoke about your top five earlier. Uh, but one, uh, first question, has that prediction come off? Or second question, uh, are there any that you think are most likely in that 25? It has not come to fruition yet, but there are two that I think are possible to happen this year and then uh, maybe a couple um, a, a year or two out. Um, so I talked um, in the past about the lumber mills. Not not surprisingly, my number one prediction is we own a company called Green First Forest Products. They're a lumber mill out of Canada. I have met with the management team. I've followed this company for a couple of years. They are literally in business to buy this lumber mill, improve it operationally, sell it. Okay. And the best part is, is that a company called Interfor, one of the largest um, lumber producers in Canada, already owns 17% of this company. So it makes pretty good sense for them to eventually acquire them. In fact, Green First put out um, a, a poison pill, actually, because they were worried that Interfor was going to buy them um, or buy a large, even larger stake in the company. Um, so they put this poison pill, I believe it's if they go above a 20% or 25% holding of all the outstanding shares, um, then um, Greenverse has the ability to issue um, a lot of shares to potentially prevent um, an acquisition or for potentially uh, prevent them from getting acquired. Um, so that would be my number one prediction. Um, And then the other one I think is Donnelly Financial. Um, They're in the regulatory business, mutual funds, um, tickers, DFIN. Um, The most likely um, candidate there is probably like a Broadridge or maybe one of the larger investment banks um, potentially acquires them. Company is very cheap. Um, They're going through some headwinds right now. They're um, heavily reliant on sort of transactions, M&A, IPOs, things like that. You go from 2021 where there are I don't know how many hundreds of SPAC IPOs to a market now where there is no M&A, no IPOs, you know, bit of a headwind there, but um, we still um, like the prospects there. Yeah, hopefully that IPO window opens again soon because mm. there's a few great companies that I'd love to invest in. Yes. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, well... Arguable if they're great, but they're certainly uh, trading at a very high value. Your second prediction was around Tesla. Now, you predicted that Tesla would have a sub-200 billion market cap by the end of the year. 
and what they were probably 300 400 billion when when you wrote it Tesla's had a good year. It's up 52% year to date, at least when we uh, wrote these questions. And it's about half a trillion dollar market cap. So the big question... Errol. Where to from here for Tesla? Yeah. Uh, I will say there is a bit of a personal personal vendetta against Tesla. Uh, they bought a, um, a company called SolarCity um, several mm-hmm. years ago. And one of the things that the company did was they used taxpayer money in Buffalo, New York, where, where I'm from, to open up a new plan. I believe it was a part of the Buffalo Billions, um, this plan they had. And so we essentially funded this brand new plan. The, the goal was supposed to be they were going to hire, you know, thousands of engineers, things like that. Nothing has come from it. So there, on that side, there's a bit of a, of a personal so agenda. So is the plant but, there at all? Uh, it is a gorgeous plant. The parking lots just are empty and there's nothing going on in those plants. They don't let anybody through um, to tour it or anything because there's there's nothing really to, to show them. Wow. Um, Wait, so was that a solar city plant or was that a Tesla? Like, I believe it's a solar city plant. It's now branded as Tesla. Yeah, okay, um, yeah, 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 yeah. But so there's that part. And then on the fundamental side, you know, the company is cutting prices. I don't care what you say. This is a car company. It is not a tech. It's not a tech company. It's not a software company. It is a car company. Car companies' economics are not great. They typically trade at single digit, low single digit multiples. You know, I don't. I don't know where Tesla is trading at these days, but it's well north of you know twenty or thirty times. It's trading about a fifty pay. Yeah, yeah, there we go. And look, I get the argument that they have, they have first mover advantage. Their cars are are great. The business economics, you know, this isn't a business that's ever going to generate 20, 30, 40% return on invested capital. These are, you know, high, high single digit, maybe mid single digit type um, economics, you know, maybe autonomous vehicles and uh, robo taxis are somehow massively profitable for them. But when the CEO tip continues to promise these new um, ideas, autonomous taxis, you know, the Cybertruck, the number of promises that he has laid out that have just never come to fruition, I don't know how people trust him so much. I, I think I, re, I respect him a lot in that he accelerated the transition to electric vehicles. From the, so from that point, I, I think we should all be grateful that he really accelerated the timeline. On the other hand, you know, he did it all a lot with taxpayer money. Um, he's lied a couple times pretty you know the 420 funding secured that's you know pretty pretty tough to get that wasn't over that was a lie yeah <laughs> right, right. What, what's even worse is I actually had puts I, I bought puts on the company at that time and then that comes out and I'm like you know I don't even know what to do with this thing anymore it's like um, so I, you know again it's a car company probably should trade mid single digits it's growing people always, one of the things um, people have been saying for years is the competition is coming the competition is coming you know, the competition's finally here. You go outside, mm, there's mm, several mm. different EVs. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're noticing it in Australia. Um, we're seeing a lot of the, the Chinese car, uh, EV car makers open up uh, like dealerships or showrooms, um, NEO and BYD. BYD. Um, I don't know if you're seeing them in, in, in America as well, but we're certainly feeling, we're seeing that competition in Australia. Yeah, it's typically more like the legacy makers. I've seen some, some Ford, um, their Mustangs, Volkswagens, things like mm. that. We actually saw a really nice Jaguar as we yes. were walking yeah. here that I think was electric. F-type electric? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Looked, looked nice, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Can't afford those. <laughs> <laughs> now, at the start of each year, Dominic, we also do bold predictions, and one of mine was that... Bitcoin would double in price. Your prediction was that crypto, it's going to be the the final blow for cryptocurrency. Unfortunately, Bitcoin is currently up 65% year to date. So what happens here? I still don't know what the point of a cryptocurrency is. I've spent, you know, hours trying to research. I I actually bought um, Bitcoin, you know, several years ago just to, you know, see what it's like to buy and sell. Yeah. And I remember I literally woke up every hour that I owned it to check on the price. And it was like, this cannot be psychologically good for my health. <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't ever see anybody transacting in it. People say it's going to be the next gold. You know, gold has some value in the sense of what it gets used for um, in our daily lives. I, I just don't know what the use case is for it. And if something doesn't have a use case other than, you know, I think the stock or the, the price is going to go up into the right, like that is not a good enough reason for me to say this thing should be around um, over the long run. Nice. 
Well, it's uh, it's hanging around. That's the thing. Yeah. It's just, it's, it is it's unbelievably resilient. Yeah. yeah. No, normally you see these fads. They, just, they go up and then they just completely explode. Yeah. The fact that this, is, this has some staying power to it. Yeah. You know, it, it says something. Mm. Well, a lot of all the... I guess the shit coins that they call them, the altcoins, yep. a lot of those have blown up. Yeah, the, do- the Dogecoin no, or whatever. Yeah, 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 but Bitcoin just keeps ticking along. Yeah. Did you guys see um, Pepe coin? It was up like 5 million percent. <laughs> You'll be writing about that in your 2024. Yeah, right, yeah, that's right. Maybe I should just stay away from Bitcoin and just pick one of the altcoins that really has no, yeah. no functionality to it. <laughs> So, Dominic, uh, we've covered a lot of ground uh, in today's interview. We've, we've spoken about a lot of different industries. As you look at the portfolio now and you look at the market now, uh, what are certain themes or certain industries or certain companies that are really capturing your curiosity at the moment? Yeah, I, I think it's really tough right now to invest in the U.S. market. Um, we, you know, we have a treasury somewhere around four and a half, five percent, and yet the market, you know, the market multiples are still 18, 19, 20 times forward earnings. So I will say the investing universe, the number of ideas that I am coming across on a daily basis is few and far between. I I'm actually starting to broaden out and maybe looking towards, you know, Europe, um, Asia companies. Australia? Like Austra- <laughs> I am, it's funny you say that. I am actually looking at some metallurgical coal uh, companies, which I believe Australia yeah. is known for. Yeah, Australia, uh, Australia has a lot of coal. Yeah. We, uh, they were beaten down so much yes. for like the last decade. And then last year just had a... A year from, yeah, just unbelievable year. Yeah, so that is actually like one of the main areas um, I'm I'm sort of looking at is we have just underinvested within the infrastructure. So oil and gas, copper, you know, steel, coal, um, graphite electrodes, things like that. So um, typically like these hard assets, everybody had just been fascinated for the past, you know, five years with software as a service. You know, software is going to eat the world and have totally ignored these hard asset companies. A lot of these are trading at very low valuations, and you know that they're getting priced right now as if they're going to be out of business in five to ten years. But you know, for us to make the transition from you know these legacy um, fossil fuels to a more green economy, they can't just they cannot go over they cannot go away overnight. They are they are going to be here for decades to come. And when they're getting priced as if they're going away tomorrow, you know it, it seems like an attractive place to look. Well, if you love mining companies, Australia is the market for you. <laughs> we are undisputed. Well, us in Canada, we, yeah, we yeah. dig things out of the ground That's really right. well. Now, Dominic, uh, as we've mentioned, you, you teach uh, investment analysis and, and obviously um, get kids excited about it. So what are some of the best investing resources that we can use as, as retail investors to help us on our journey? Yeah, I think Twitter is an unbelievable resource. I think everybody, you know, is on that website. Um you can just essentially what I do anytime I'm looking at a new idea is I'll just type in dollar sign in the ticker to see if anybody's talking about it. And there are some times where there's absolutely nothing, which might sound bad, but it means nobody is looking at that company. And it's like, okay, maybe is this, you know, just an overlooked company that um, could be a good buy. Or there's several threads of, hey, this is what I think. Here's the thesis. Here's the valuation, things like that. So I think Twitter, get on Twitter, you know, tweet at people, just tweet your ideas, things like that um, would be a good source. Before you move on, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, At OSA underscore Rochester. Nice. nice. Follow us there. Um, podcasts, you know, there are several podcasts. You guys, yours is great. Um, there's several in the U.S. that, you know, some go in-depth on one specific idea. Um, others will just break down a business just and give you a pretty good overview of what the company does. Um, another one, uh, teaching-related, Joel Greenblatt used to teach at Columbia University. It was a special situations class. And he has his lecture notes or his lecture notes and presentations are on YouTube I think those are an awesome way. He goes through real life examples of what he did when he was running a fund. And it's just awesome to think or awesome to hear how he thought through the ideas um, essentially in real time. Um, and then the other one is Aswat the Motor, and he's a NYU professor. He posts all of his lectures on YouTube as well. He's you know known as the Dean of Valuation. I think if you want to learn how to value a business, he is a great resource. Awesome. Some great ones there. We'll um, make sure that we include some links to the... um, We'll grab them off you and put them in the show notes. 
Well, Dominic, it's been an absolute pleasure. We have uh, we have run out of time. Thank you for driving all the way from Rochester to, to be here today. And uh, we were uh, connected in Omaha, um, an amazing experience. Before we go, uh, final question. Each year, the Equity Mates community vote on their favourite uh, expert interview as part of the Equity Mates Awards. Now, by virtue of you being here today, you are automatically in the running <laughs> to win Expert of the Year. To help them make the decision, if you're to win the beautiful uh, uh, engraved glass trophy that we would send all the way to Rochester, where would you put it? My mom has pictures of my sister everywhere throughout the house and there's nothing of me. <laughs> that thing would go right on the mantle in the living room to let her know who's her favorite. <laughs> nice. Love that. Love that. Great answer. Great answer. Well, uh, thank you so much. We'll make sure that, as I said, we'll include ticker handle and all the resources in the show notes, the uh, investor letters. Twitter handle. Sorry, twi- Twitter handle. Ticker. <laughs> Twitter handle uh, and the investor letters as well, all in show notes so uh, uh, the Equity Mates community can, can read along. But thank you so much, Dominic. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Dominic. And Bryce, as we finish up, we've got to say a massive thank you to Milford for powering our US tour and allowing us to have these conversations. Milford is a leading New Zealand fund manager now available for Australian investors and advisors. Milford's talented and globally experienced investment team aim to deliver strong long-term returns while managing downside risks. They also invest in the same funds as their clients. You can strive for a smoother investing journey with Milford's experienced active management and their award-winning Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund, ticker MFOA. Find the Milford Australian Absolute Growth Fund and other Milford funds on your trading platforms or at milfordasset.com.au. And before you invest, be sure to read the fund's product disclosure statement and target market determination found at milfordasset.com.au. And Equity Mates, just a reminder, as we wrap up this episode, nothing in this interview or in any Equity Mates podcast should be taken as personal financial advice. We're not aware of your personal circumstances. So listen, learn, do your own research and make your own decisions. You have been listening to an Equity Mates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.